0: Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences.
1: Good afternoon. Welcome to the LSE for today's afternoon um, event, which forms part of the LSE Festival, where we'll be talking about how do we get to a post COVID world, which is something which is hopefully. Not tempting fate by talking about that. And so the festival is taking place from Monday the 13th to Saturday the 18th, and part of a whole year of activity at the LSE exploring how social science can tackle global issues. So my name is Neil Lee. I'm a professor of economic geography here at the LSE, and I'm also the convener for the theme on cities, jobs, and economic change at the International Inequalities Institute. I'm delighted to be welcomed today by three fantastic speakers. Dr. Carl Benedict Frey, Rebecca MacDonald, and Dr. Anna Valero. So starting with Carl, Carl, Carl Benedict Frey is the Oxford Martin City Fellow at the University of Oxford, where he directs a programme of research on the future of work at the Oxford Martin School. Now, he's been in, you know, almost every media outlet known to man. He wrote one of the most famous papers, you know, so as an academic, I'm jealous of famous papers, and this is a, an incredibly famous paper about the future of work, probably the most famous. Um, his work's been featured in The Economist, Foreign Affairs, New York Times, Time Magazine, and Le Monde. Um, and his most recent book, The Technology Trap, was selected as one of the FT best books of the year in 2019. And I h- highly recommend it. I read it in lockdown. Um, you can tell I read it in lockdown because it has got mm-hmm. apple juice on it mm-hmm. and my kids. But it's a wonderful read, and I'd strongly um, recommend you read it. Next up, we have Rebecca McDonald, who's the head of economics at the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. Her work focuses on labour market and social security policy and how these can be used to improve the lives of those living in poverty in the UK. So she's led the JRF's economic thinking on how to improve job quality for low-paid workers and on social security adequacy. She previously worked at the Centre for Cities, an urban policy think tank, and at PwC. Now, no book yet, but we're, you know, I'm expecting one soon, and I'm sure it'll be awesome as well. Um, And finally, Anna Valero, uh, our very own from the LSE, who's a Senior Policy Fellow at the Centre for Economic Performance, Deputy Director of the Programme on Innovation and Diffusion, and an Associate of the Grantham Research Institute at the LSE. Now, when I joined the LSE, um, I was told that Tony Travers was responsible for more than half of the LSE's media output. And actually, I think Anna is sort of challenging him. So I mean this in the best Possible way. She's sort of featured in The Economist last week. Everywhere I read, uh, research is just, a, you know, for good reason being featured. So we're really pleased you found the time in your hectic media schedule to um, come and talk to us today. So today we're going to be exploring how we can create good jobs in a time of crisis where everyone and everyone benefits. Our speakers are going to discuss the opportunities to transition to net zero, about how skills policy might be reframed, about the impact of technology. On the labor market, we have three fantastic speakers. I'm really excited about today's event. For those of you who are using Twitter, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Festival. Um, Put your phones on silent, please, if you're not using them for tweeting, um, so we don't disrupt the event. The event's being recorded, and we're sort of in this brave new world of a sort of dual hybrid and um, hybrid event slash in-person event and because of that you know we will have to be a little bit careful making sure that we get um, questions from both the audience here and the audience online you're very welcome to ask questions and my colleague Emma will be sort of raising them to the panel later but we're going to start off with 30 minutes of presentations from our three wonderful speakers so first of all Carl thank you very much for joining us and I look forward to hearing what you've got to say Thanks very much, Neil, for that perhaps overly generous introduction. It's a real pleasure
2: to be here, all the way from Oxford. I must admit, I was slightly nervous coming here. I haven't travelled that far in a long time, but it's clearly worthwhile, and it's a real pleasure uh, to be here. As Neil mentioned, the uh, topic of today's session is how can we create new jobs in time of crisis? Which is essentially the same as asking the question how we can restore the middle class, which is something that we've been discussing and debating uh, for a long time. And, A number of administrations have recently made some serious efforts. The Biden administration, for example, has made a really push in terms of promoting unionization, boosting uh, minimum wages, investing more in infrastructure, and so on, uh, with mixed success, uh, I should say. Um, But all of those are clearly welcome efforts, but I would argue that even if successful, they won't be enough. Minimum wages do help but they're essentially designed to make existing jobs somewhat less horrible and better paid. Infrastructure has been important. Infrastructure investment did mask the decline of manufacturing jobs up until the housing bust of 2007, 2008, but essentially infrastructure investment is also a while off. And and if we look at what has been going on in the labor market, uh, over the couple of decades, the big story has been one of the industrialization uh, Middle-income manufacturing jobs disappearing. That is not only happening in the UK. It is today even happening in China, which has seen, seen over 12 million manufacturing jobs disappear since 2013. And those jobs are not going to come back. So we have to ask ourselves, where will the jobs come from to replace them? Um, there's been some good research um, on this topic. A recent paper by David Water and co-authors, for example, shows that most jobs that people were employed in or are employed in today, I should say, did not even exist in the 1940s. We had to invent those jobs. And if you were to ask your great-grandmother, you know, a well, while back, what do, you think, what do you think your grandchildren are going to do, you probably not have replied, well, my daughter is my granddaughter is clearly going to be a software engineer, and my grandson is going to be a solar panel installer, and we had to
3: invent those jobs to
2: begin with. And, and what can we do to make us more jobs? Well, fairly first of I all, mean, we can spend more on research and development, which is the standard response, because uh, Research and development comes with significance below us, which means that there is no business that can fully internalize it, and that's especially true of basic research. We tend to underspend on research and development, so it's a good case for governments to step in and spend more. But I would argue still that that's unlikely to be enough because it translates those findings, and that research, into real jobs, you need somebody to you know build products and prototypes and and produce those uh, at scale, uh, which is then in the end what creates new products, new industries um, and new jobs. And the most radical innovations tend to come from young companies and startups. If you think about the pandemic, BioNTech and Moderna were (coughs) companies behind the most effective uh, vaccines. BioNTech did it in partnership with Pfizer's which helped it scale uh, <clears throat> up production. Uh, but more broadly, large companies tend to be relatively mature in mature industries. And when they increase productivity, they often do so by offshoring production tasks and automating and increasing you know, productivity by being becoming more productive in what they already do. But if you had you know automated everything that the Roman Empire did, Uh, You know, we will be super prosperous today. As a consequence of that, we're more prosperous today because we invented a new entirely unimaginable uh, industries and smaller companies, um, sort of often being independent inventors who have uh, done so. So real concern is therefore that despite the fact that it's becoming much more cheap to set up a new company because of the cloud and because of computers and so on, and we're actually seeing in frontier economies uh, like the United States a secular decline in business dynamism. And more recently, even in the technology sector. And, and what some economists have shown, and here I'm referring to research by Thomas Philippon and Doma Guterres, finds that regulations have a negative impact on small companies, especially in industries with high lobbying expenditure. So it seems that incumbents have been quite successful in erecting barriers to for small businesses that tend to uh, create these new types of industries. And that calls for potentially competition uh, competition policy to uh, correct some of it. And uh, the task is not just to combat monopsony power, which has been uh, increasing in recent years and is one uh, of the reasons that you know, wages have been lagging behind productivity. Uh, competition policy can also uh, serve as a way of facilitating entry and new types of innovation. So, for example, the 1956 Consent Decree, which forced Bell Labs to make its patents available to competitors, opened up the market, created new follow on patents and inventions, and it also <coughs> created... New startups and new businesses. And um, now uh, a crucial question is then what type of technologies will those new businesses invent? Will they invent primarily automation technologies that replace people in assisting jobs and tasks? Or will they uh, create more enabling type of technologies that create new jobs in industries? Um, and um, we don't know is uh, the uh, answer to that. But we do know that the policies we put in place uh, have the potential to shape, it, right? So research from economists at MIT, for example, shows that if you look at payroll taxes versus uh, taxes uh, on capital, and uh, the former has been increasing or been some more excitement in most countries. The latter has been falling quite rapidly. And what that means is that we're making labor uh, relatively expensive and capital relatively cheap, which intends, incentivizes companies to increasingly invest in labor-replacing technologies, automation technologies, rather than technologies that create new jobs. And I think much can be achieved by closing uh, or narrowing that gap in terms of incentivizing companies to create and uh, uh, invent more uh, labor-enabling. I think much more can be done to increase the pool of inventors and entrepreneurs as well. Some very important uh, researchers, the LSE by John Believe and others, show that you know, to become an inventor, uh, you need to be exposed to uh, invention at some point in your life to decide to pursue that uh, career. So people that have parents that are inventors. Uh, or that grew up in neighborhoods where there is abundance of inventors are much more likely to become inventors themselves and then invent new industries uh, and new jobs. Um, And I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in trying to expose more people to inventive uh, activities, maybe as early as in school, uh, because uh, that would mean that there are fewer lost Einstein's, which is a, a phrase I wish I had invented myself um, and it also means that there will we'll be more people inventing the jobs uh, of the future uh, and indeed if you think about it, right, all we do in terms of innovation policy like venture capital, intellectual property rights and so on, it's just a downstream of that. But you only care about venture capital, intellectual property rights if you've decided to become an inventor yourself in the first instance. Finally, I think uh, more needs to be done to make sure that the new jobs that are then be, being invented are more dispersed across space. So my own research with Norberger for example, shows that if you go back to the 1970s, new job titles that didn't exist in the previous decades were more likely to merge in routine uh, rule-based cities where you know, special, specialized in manufacturing type of work But since the 1980s, when more and more of these job titles are becoming related to computer technologies, the ones that you may remember that Tom Friedman wrote a book about called The World is Flat, arguing that we can work from wherever and everything will be really equalized and wonderful in our digital age. Those computer computer technologies uh, or those jobs related to computer technologies have been extraordinarily highly clustered in skilled cities. And when a new technology job is created in the city of London, that increases demand for in person type of services. (laughs) So, the people driving taxes here, the people uh, working at the local grocery store, uh, the hairdresser, and so on, needs to be in London in order to provide those services. And that then in turn drives up house prices and makes it less affordable for more people providing those services to live in places like London and essentially creates a vision cycle uh, that we need to uh, break. And one of my favorite examples here is uh, Malmö in Sweden, which is close to where I grew up. a city that specialized for a long time in building ships. Shipyard closed down in the 1990s. Uh, sitting in poorly for a long time. Along comes the bridge to Copenhagen. The allows people in Malmö to stay put. There and a benefit from sheep housing, of work in Copenhagen, which had a greater abundance of working jobs. Uh, most of those people that commute back spend most of their <coughs> income where they lived, which gave a boost to the local service economy there. And before COVID, it was one of the most dynamic labor markets in Europe. Uh, and through a poor COVID, obviously, they could still work in Copenhagen, but without making the commute. Uh, and I think one of the benefits potentially from this crisis, from this pandemic, is that at least some people can now move outside of city centers where housing is cheaper. They will then create more demand, potentially for in-person cycle services there where housing is uh, cheaper as well. But we need to facilitate that shift and that requires investment in uh, transportation infrastructure to make those commutes easier. And it requires investment in digital infrastructure uh, to allow more people to work remotely uh, from outside city centres, uh, that could
1: potentially help achieve a greater Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, very, very interesting. I got a lot out of that. Um, we're going to move straight on. We'll have questions at the end. We'll move straight on to Rebecca. Great. Thanks, Neil. Um, so
4: um, I thought I would focus uh, in my 10 minutes or so around the issue of um, low quality employment, uh, especially employment practices among lower paid, uh, the lower paid end of the labour market. And we're gonna be talking a lot today around uh, technological change, labour market change, uh, new job creation, but this is a, you know, potentially less exciting, but an important topic in terms of improving quality of life and reducing in work quality uh, in terms of the labour market. So um, I thought I would kick off with, Uh, firstly an overview of in-work poverty trends at the moment in the UK Uh, secondly I'll discuss a little bit around some of the labour market aspects and uh, a few of the labour market issues which are contributing towards that trend Um, and then thirdly I'll touch on a few policy areas where there is kind of a slightly more of a positive take in the sense that there are tangible things that can be done which would make a difference in this area. So I'll crack on with uh, my first point, which is around in-work poverty. So this is just to give a little bit of a context around some of the labour market issues at the moment. So you can see on the chart on the left that um, at the beginning of the pandemic, just as it hit, 13% of the workforce in the UK were experiencing poverty. That trend had been going up over time. So if we go back to the mid 1990s, Um, around 9% of workers were living in poverty, uh, and there's been a kind of gradual uh, increase over the period. One of the results of this trend is that there's been quite a significant shift in terms of uh, what poverty looks like in this country. So if you look at the chart on the right, uh, back in the mid-1990s, the start of this time period, around 60% of families in poverty didn't have anyone in work. So, that kind of more traditional view of a, a family in poverty as due to unemployment or due to illness very much held true. But then, because of this trend over time, that's very much flipped on its head. And now we see that actually the majority of families in poverty do have someone in work, which is a, a very a significant shift. In terms of who these workers are, um, poverty rates are highest in sectors like residential care, retail, uh, and also hospitality. Um, and in terms of demographics, you know that part-time workers are more likely to experience poverty, lone parents, and also workers from an ethnic minority background. Um, so that's a kind of snapshot in terms of in-work poverty. Uh, so why is the trend upwards? Why has it increased in recent years? Well, actually, a lot of what's behind that line is not to do with the labour market to do with periods of uh, big increases in housing costs, which kind of undermined earnings growth, and also to do with benefit incomes and how, in the especially in the periods of kind of austerity, um, there were periods where benefit incomes either were frozen or fell. But of course, this discussion is about the labour market. So I wanted to zone in on a, a couple of aspects of the labour market that contribute in some way to the fact that for many workers, uh, being in work is not enough in terms of to get them out of poverty. So the first aspect of the labor market, I wanted to focus on um, kind of labeled insecurity. Uh, It's a bit of a subjective term and a little bit fluffy, I suppose, (laughs) when I say work can be insecure. But what I mean by that is that for some workers, there's a kind of characteristic of unpredictability or uncertainty associated with their work. So that a common experience of that would be not knowing what your shift pattern is gonna be till the week or a few days before, or uh, not knowing Uh, or having your shift cancelled at the last minute uh, and not having compensation for that. And often if people are paid early, of course, that has a lot of implications in terms of being able to plan ahead and know how much they're gonna get paid. So um, in terms of this unpredictability, uh, I think there's a question as like, is that a problem? Is that a concern? So there are are pros and there are ways in which it's not inherently bad. So for many businesses, it's useful to be able to draw on workers at short notice um, for some workers, they like that kind of casual and short-term nature of work, uh, and some people uh, favour zero-hours contracts from an employee side as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I want to argue that the current uh, kind of prevalence and who it's affecting uh, is a case for concern. Um, and that stems uh, from the fact that if you are in one of these less secure forms mm-hmm. of work with unpredictability kind of built into it, you are more likely to be low-paid. And I think this coming together of low-pay and increased uncertainty uh, and insecurity is a problem because then the risks of these jobs are placed on the people who are least able to manage them. And you're not being compensated financially for the additional risks and uncertainties that your job entails. So this bar chart just illustrates this kind of skew towards uh, low pay. If you look at the light blue bars, this is for kind of what I've labeled more secure work. So it's a bit of a proxy for this being permanent contracts, full-time contracts. And it's fairly evenly distributed across the earnings quintiles. But for the other bars, which are forms of work that tend to have more insecurity built into them, so 0 hours contracts, temporary contracts, for example, it's very much skewed towards the left of the chart because more workers are in the lower earnings quintiles. And in particular, for the orange bar, which is 0 hours contracts, you can see that at this point in time, which is the end of 2019, um, uh, more than half of workers on a 0 hours contract were in the bottom earnings quintile. So I think that coming together of low pay and insecurity uh, is an issue in terms of uh, making life very difficult for many low-paid workers but also it can have a knock-on impact in terms of their family incomes. And the second aspect I wanted to touch on fairly briefly was underemployment. Um, Underemployment being a worker wanting more hours, being willing to work more hours but not being able to find and get hold of them at the moment. Um, Until recently we didn't have very good uh, data in terms of how underemployment and poverty link together but there's been some great new research out from the fraser Allander Institute up in Scotland whereby they've linked some data sets together and we now have a kind of estimation of how underemployment <coughs> varies uh, according to household income quintiles uh, or deciles in this chart and you can see that for families in poverty or underneath this kind of approximate poverty line around a tenth of families um, are experiencing underemployment and of course this tells us there's both a kind of problem but also an opportunity, um, a problem in the sense that probably the lack of these hours is holding back uh, these families from uh, being better off and in some cases that difference could potentially have pulled them over the poverty line but also an opportunity in that there's kind of a clear so what to this chart which is that if we could strengthen the labour market and um, perhaps if we could incentivise their employers to offer them a few more hours then that could make quite a big difference in terms of uh, living standards. So that's a kind of overview of two labour market aspects that uh, kind of pull people back in terms of job quality and contribute towards the trends that we've seen in work quality. Um, before I move on to policy specifics, um, I had one more point which probably appears a tad random, but um, I just kind of wanted to put it in somewhere, which was we're talking a lot of, uh, you know, JRF especially, there's been a lot of discussion around job quality And I think to some extent the focus recently on job quality stems from the fact that actually nationally unemployment is pretty low and we've done very well over the last few decades in terms of kind of getting rid of the very traditional issue of uh, unemployment in this country Um, and therefore we've moved on to talking more about job quality. But I wanted to kind of highlight that that's not true everywhere and this kind of national picture of okay well we solved unemployment so we can move on to job quality is uh, there's some places where that's not true. Uh, And in particular, places like Birmingham, Wolverhampton, Bradford, Blackpool—all very dark red on this map. And these are this is a kind of very recent proxy measure for unemployment. Uh, In these places, you know, the basic issue of not having a job still exists and is still something we need to tackle. (coughs) Um, So, in terms of my last point, I'm just going to focus on uh, policy recommendations. Um, So what can be done to tackle this issue? Um, So I've grouped these policies into three buckets. And the first of these is policies which can make a difference to existing workforce, particularly at the lower paid end. Um, Starting with regulation and enforcement, there have kind of been ongoing plans uh, at the moment through various different governments to introduce an employment bill, uh, with the idea that that would, um, it's not a huge change in terms of employment regulation, um, but it would kind of get rid of some of the very worst practices at the bottom of the labour market. So that bill would likely include things like a right to request a contract that reflects your regular hours, so you have a bit more certainty, and that's built into your contract, um, or a right to kind of reasonable notice of your shift patterns. But the, the problem is at the moment is that even though these are these policies are kind of being committed to and agreed on, there isn't any action in terms of actually getting this bill in place. So that's a bit of an issue. Um, and the, the flip side of this is enforcement. Um, as I think there's a fairly consensus view that enforcement isn't as strong as it should be in the UK. There's still persistent underpayment of the minimum wage and lower paid workers often don't get the sick pay or holiday entitlements that they should. So we just definitely also need um, Uh, enforcement strengthening and again there's lots of plans and lots of different policies that you know have kind of been agreed on in order to get there but there's a lack of momentum and action in this area. Uh, The second bullet point here is around public sector employment and it's kind of a simple point which is that the government has influence directly or indirectly over the employment of many many people in the country of course so they could kind of set a standard in terms of Living wage or living hours, perhaps standards as well, uh, and kind of set a precedent in that way and make a difference. And the third one, increasing productivity in low-paid sectors. I think often this is there's a lot of pessimism around how feasible this is, but there's quite a lot of evidence that there are ways to increase productivity. Um, previous JRF research uh, by my colleagues looked at ways in which business support and government initiatives can improve the quality of management and make a difference in that way. And then just two more policy areas to very quickly touch on. One is benefit policy and the fact that actually the interaction between universal credit and less secure and more unpredictable paid jobs can be quite bad and quite and actually the benefit system can exacerbate some of the insecurity that workers face. Um, so there is, there is uh, an, quite an urgent need to kind of improve some of the ways in which universal credit is designed so that the benefit system can smooth out incomes and provide more security. <coughs> And then the final point is that these different policies in order to improve job policy uh, go very nicely alongside kind of levelling up and inclusive growth policies, I think. And um, in terms of levelling up, being focused on strengthening town and city economies across the country. And a lot of that focus will be on attracting new, higher skilled jobs and sectors to those towns and cities. Uh, And that, you know, there's evidence that that will create new jobs and help solve some of the unemployment problem. And create especially lower paid local services jobs. Um, without also focusing on some of these other areas, the people who end up in those jobs won't actually have a very high quality employment experience and will still, many of them, be trapped in poverty. So I think these two things go hand in hand very nicely and it's
1: important to do both. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much. Um, so we'll move on to Anna.
4: Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question like why do people believe in conspiracy theories or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event.
0: Thanks very much. So I'm going to be, well, I'm waiting for the slideshow. yeah, I'm going to be talking about green employment today and in the future. So I'll be drawing on quite a lot of work that we've been doing at the CP FOID um, and with colleagues at Grant and Research Institute here at the LSC on the economic opportunities in the net zero transition and also specifically looking at jobs. So the jobs element of this. I'm also going to be drawing on some recent work and ongoing work as part of the Economy 2030 inquiry, which is a collaboration with the Resolution Foundation, finally funded by the Novel Foundation. So this is a decisive decade in, in many respects. Um, we know that reaching net zero by 2050 is going to require accelerated and deep emissions reduction this decade. This is going to involve significantly increased investment across the economy and change that will be felt by people, workers, and households across the country. And this is occurring against the background of over a decade of stagnant living standards, weak productivity, persistent inequalities, shocks such as Covid, continued change due to Brexit and of course the current cost of living crisis. Addressing a lot of these long-standing areas of weakness will also require increased investment in innovation, diffusion, infrastructure and skills. So a key question then at the start of this decade is how can investments to net zero help us to drive strong sustainable and more inclusive growth and the topic of today as part of that creating good jobs that are also accessible to all. So here I'm drawing on um, a paper I wrote in research policy with Lord Stern, um, where we argued that a new approach to growth is urgently required. And we talked about what this kind of sustainable inclusive growth will look like, summarizing all the insights from theoretical and empirical literature in doing so. So if we think about what sustainable inclusive growth might look like, in the short to medium term, there are many net zero investments where the technologies already exist. We know we can make these investments quite quickly, creating new jobs, boosting shorter on demand, um, improving supply and efficiency, very urgent now given the energy crisis that we're facing, um, therefore improving kind of the cost side of businesses in terms of efficiencies, reducing waste and pollution, building resilience and gen- to climate change itself, and of course generating broader benefits such as cleaner air and all the health impacts that come from that. All these investments we can then expect to generate increased innovation and unleash new waves of technical change as net zero type innovation intertwines with digitization, which we expect to continue during this decade. And of course, longer term, we know that there isn't a feasible alternative to low carbon growth because anything else would be damaging for our planet and economies, of course, too. And we can think of this as accelerating a process of creative destruction. Um, and here, really, um, a new book by Philippe Aguilar and co-authors on creative destruction, it has a chapter dedicated to this kind of literature on directed technical change. And it ties to what Carl is saying, you know, policies, institutions, incentives, they can affect the direction of innovation, not just the amount. So we can think of this as this process of creative destruction, which propels economic change and growth, but with a purpose, i.e. decarbonization and inclusiveness as well, i.e. not replacing workers but enhancing workers. But this kind of change isn't going to happen organically given we know we need urgent change and at scale. So we need coordinated policies and incentives for investment. Um, and of course, then we also need the active management of the destruction part or the disruption and change which be felt unevenly by workers and households through the economy. So one way we can inform this transition for workers, which we expect to kind of pick up this decade and beyond is by analyzing today's green economy and the kind of experience to date. As yet, there's no agreed upon definition of a green job, and different studies take different kinds of approaches. Um, broadly, we've kind of classified them between top-down, where you, you kind of you identify specific industries, either because they're kind of known to be producing clean products and services or because they're particularly low emissions, or if you're identifying brown jobs, high emissions, and then you simply count all the jobs in those industries. And of course, this can be useful if you're thinking about a particular sector that will be having to be phased out in a specific place, you'll want to count all the jobs in that sector that will be affected. But of course, there might be a janitor in such firm who could be a janitor in another firm. So the bottom-up approaches, they can be split into two different types. One would be trying to kind of identify specific firms that are um, within the firm, how much of their activities in terms of employment or revenues relate to clean activities and products and services. The other is at the occupation level, where you try and identify green occupations through the tasks, skills and, and activities that are being done, which you'd expect to be relevant net zero. And this is the approach that we've used in some recent work. So just to summarize. What we've done is taken these green occupations as classified on the US um, classification system of occupations. And this was a process done back in 2010, 2011. Um, And what it did was identify three types of green jobs. um, In the middle of the circle are the kind of most directly green jobs we might think of often, which are termed green, new, and emerging. So this is new jobs arising due to the transition, like wind engineers, like solar installers, for example. Then also directly green involving new green tasks are the green enhanced skills category. So these are jobs which already exist, but they need change in the tasks and the skills involved. So you might think of a production manager. who has to think about sustainable steps in the processes and thinking about supply chains as well. And then the broadest um, category, which can be thought of as indirectly green, are jobs that already exist, and don't need to change, but there'll be more demand for them as part of the transition. So an example there is kind of chemists who or, um the kinds of jobs that we feel that will just need more of, but they're not going to experience significant change. And so what we do is we apply, we take a crosswalk of this very detailed classification system into more aggregated systems such as the UK and European Labour Force Survey provide. And we estimate how many jobs could be considered green of these different types, How do they differ from non-green counterparts? And how can we describe perhaps trends in these things as well? And we find that taking these occupational um, classifications into the UK, around 17% of jobs overall can be considered green in some sense. And this is higher in some sectors, which actually are higher emissions, which is what you'd expect. These are the areas where to date, there has been most of the action on net zero. But what you can see is this is a concept that applies across the economy. So what we then do, having kind of identified these green jobs and the workers in them, we can compare the jobs themselves, aspects of the jobs themselves, and the workers who tend to inhabit them. And we find that on a number of measures that we can see in the Labour Force Survey type data sets, such as wages, security of contracts, etc., green jobs can be considered to be good jobs, but they need to be more accessible to all. So what you can see here in this chart is that um, we've got the three different types of green jobs, and we've got different sectors of the economy. Now, here you can see that it's more likely, particularly on the directly green jobs, to have more degree graduates um, holding such jobs. And this is even after controlling the detailed industry. So it's saying within a specific industry in these areas, um, graduates are more likely to have the greener occupations than the non-green occupations. And we also find that they're more likely to be on permanent contracts, for example. And we also estimate standard Minsurian type wage regressions, where you look at the relationship between wages and being in a green job, but controlling for things like education and experience. And we find that there is this kind of wage premium to being in a green job in the experience to date. And it's particularly there actually for the lower-skilled lower occupational groups, which is quite interesting. It suggests that in those lower skill um, occupations, green jobs <laughs> actually are a source of kind of improving work. But they're also less likely to be held by women overall younger workers who we know have been particularly impacted by the pandemic through labour market and educational kind of impacts, um, and also non-white workers, so this suggests implications for diversity. In work that we're going to be publishing next week as part of the Economy 2030, inquiring this as a little preview, we take a kind of subset of those green jobs, um, which are the ones that specifically involve green tasks, and we also identify a group of brown jobs, which we define as occupations that are particularly prevalent in the most high emissions intense sectors and then what we do is we compare the kind of (coughs) task content in these different types of jobs to kind of also with all other jobs and this chart here you can see there's quite a different profile with some of those green jobs involving more non-routine analytical tasks non-routine personal tasks which are things that it's kind of harder to automate in general Um, and the brown jobs perhaps with more manual kind of tasks tasks and non-routine physical Um, So this is interesting because the brown jobs and the green jobs are kind of further apart to kind of all other jobs. Um, And this is a distance. If you summarise this into kind of an overall task distance, the distance we find is one that is quite rare. um, when you look at job, job to job transitions and the distance covered in the past, we also explicitly examine the workers moving from brown to green jobs. And we find that those that have done this over the past decade tend to be those in already more close jobs with higher education and of prime working age. So all of this together kind of suggests some groups are going to find it harder to transition or to reskill. So we'll need to pay specific attention to those. Now, net zero this decade, of course, is going to bring with it much more change than what we've seen so far, because now we've got legal commitments and enhanced commitments globally as well. So the Green Jobs Taskforce um, published by Bayes last year sets out a really nice um, way of thinking about the three groups of sectors in terms of the kinds of employment and skills needs. So you've got the well established and growing sectors, you've got the emerging and predicted to grow sectors and transforming sectors, which are not going to completely disappear, although some parts might, but there'll need to be a lot of transformation within them. And in the emerging predicted to grow sector, we've done quite a detailed report um, on one example there, which is carbon capture usage and storage, looking at the kind of potential for growth in the UK, where, where new activity and jobs might be located. Um, in transforming, we've looked at the automotive sector as well in quite a lot of detail. Across all of these areas, there's a lot of sector specific issues, um, and it's really important, therefore, to have these real deep dives and kind of review the studies done by the relevant um, industry bodies often. So, what we know though, there'll be further creation of new jobs. We need a lot of new jobs here, but also a lot of change in skills and demand for existing jobs. And while specific skills will be required there's also quite an emphasis on general stem and i would actually expand that to say steam because i think creativity and design is going to be very important thinking about system system-wide change and designing new systems digital managerial and cross-disciplinary skills in a lot of cases and a really nice example there is when you're thinking about net zero homes traditionally you would have someone doing a gas boiler you might have someone doing energy efficiency now, lots of things will have to be integrated together, including solar panels, car charging, smart grid technologies. So much more working across between disciplines to be involved. And of course, the needs, challenges, and opportunities will vary across the country based on sectoral makeup and pre-existing endowments. And that's another thing we've done in one of our reports where we examined a set of net zero line investments made very quickly in light of the COVID pandemic. We kind of did this early on to say, hey, okay, here are investments that are kind of ready to go, and where would the jobs be most likely to be created across the UK, and they tend to be quite spread. So now quickly I'd like to draw on some recent work where we're looking at the growth opportunities for the UK, um, and there are growth opportunities in net zero for the UK and its regions, based on quite a hard-headed assessment of the UK's relative strengths compared to other countries and using a range of data sources. What we show here is an analysis of patenting, and we're looking at revealed technological advantage, which compares a country's share of patenting in a specific technology field to the global share. And that's shown here on the y-axis. So clean technologies, you might be able to see it's kind of a turquoise bubble above the x-axis there. That's an area where overall specialised in. The bubble size suggests that it's a medium kind of size technology area overall. And the fact that it's kind of a bit far along the horizontal axis suggests this is an area that's been growing recently. And of course, we now expect more growth as there's much more investment going into these areas. So the UK specializes in this overall, but there are some specific areas where we're really specialized, like tidal, wind, and CCUS technologies. And in separate analysis, we show using a new methodology that these areas generate relatively high returns to public R&D investments with very appealing regional patterns. So, including outside the Golden Triangle. So if we invest in these types of technologies, they can generate high returns outside the Golden Triangle, but also Through a direct mechanism, investments outside the golden triangle generating returns, but also via spillovers from those investments made inside the golden triangle. We also show that less productive regions tend to be more specialized in clean technologies and firms using a range of data sets. You can see on this chart that there's a downward-sloping relationship between the intensity of clean patenting at the area level and productivity. So finally, to bring this together into some conclusions for policy. Um, clearly investing in human capital will be key for meeting net zero, having the skills in place to actually do all the stuff we need to do, but also for realising the opportunities, whether it's innovation um, and the new kind of sectors that we need to grow and for building resilience for workers. There's going to be a role for general and specific skills, starting from schools, I would say, like we know young people are interested in these things. It's kind of starting in schools, going through the education system um, and setting out what the career routes are really going to look like. Clear clear role for on-the-job training. We know this has been in decline in recent years. Look, exploring further incentives for firms to invest in this. They've been investing less over time, and there are are various reasons for that. And for workers as well, who might find it hard to take time out of work, specifically self-employed people, foregone earnings to to engage in training. Place-specific approaches will be important, with collaboration across stakeholders and targeted programmes. The demand side is key, because if the government's going to encourage rollout of energy um, efficiency, that's going to encourage people to reskill in those areas. But more broadly, net zero itself isn't a silver bullet for solving our problems, but by embedding it into a new economic strategy, we maximize the chances of our success. Thank you.
1: Wonderful. Thank you very much. And thanks for my poor quality chairing. We've got about 15 minutes for conversation, for discussion and questions. So I'll, first of all, we'll go around the room and see if anyone's got A question start and then Emma is going to be shepherding some questions from these online chat. So, who does anyone in the room have a question? The gentleman in the Uh, uh, oh. uh. And if you could say who you are and where you're from. Uh,
3: My name is Rob, and I think where I'm from will become clear. Uh, In London, we have a great green industry which holds jobs uh, well above the pay level you might expect for the skill, what you would define as good jobs, and it's London Underground. And why do we have a load of green good jobs in the heart of London on London Underground? It's because they have an effective trade union. By the way, I'm from the Trade Union Congress and formerly from the RMT. Um, And I was just surprised to hear three excellent speakers on investment, on good jobs, on protecting the labour market from the transition. And not really a mention at all of the role of trade unions and no acknowledgement of how the decline in good jobs over the last 20 or 30 years, the increase in inequality and precarity has gone alongside the political destruction, the politically deliberate destruction of trade unions in this country. And I don't really see how we can be making policy suggestions to improve decent jobs when you have a state ideologically committed destroying decent job and destroying uh, planning, right? The whole talk about green jobs at the end about, it's about state planning. We have a state designed to avoid planning. So I guess my question is, what role do you see for the rebuilding of trade union rights in this country within a transition to good jobs after the crisis? Great,
1: great question. Carl, yeah. uh, if we go in the order of the speakers, right? that's okay. So we'll start with Carl. Where do you see unions getting yeah. into okay. So it's absolutely
2: clear that if you look between countries, there are huge differences in inequalities, even though they have been affected by the same type of technologies. And one reason for that is differences in skill endowment. So one reason that inequality in Sweden, for example, is much lower than in UK and the rest of Europe is that we have much higher share of college-educated workers. Another reason, though, is that we're also much more unionized and part of the reason, I think, has to do with the level of bargaining. So in countries where you have national uh, bargaining, in Sweden, you know, the Confederation of Industry puts down together with uh, the labor unions, what's called the mark, which is sort of the floor uh, for all subsequent negotiations. And uh, that then, you know, provides a certain foundation uh, f- for some sub- sub- subsequent bargaining on the industry level. If you have, you know, firm level bargaining, uh, for example, uh, and you're, you know, Amazon, uh, and you're automating a lot of stuff, and therefore becoming super productive and hiring a lot of people, but as a consequence, you know, uh, your competitors are losing uh, a lot of jobs. Then as a union, you may say, well, that's great, you know, it's good for my company, uh, but it's not going to be good that good to the industry And no. um, so these differences in the structure of unions do matter. And we've seen historically that during the sort of before industrialization, unions organized on uh, craft-based uh, level. They then moved to organize around the mass production industries. We're now seeing those many, uh, mass production industries increasingly disappearing. And I think unions will need to adjust to this process. And I don't know exactly uh, how that is going to look like. But I do think that we can learn something by looking at the differences uh, in how countries are unionized. And particularly in the Scandinavian countries, which have managed to maintain very high levels of unionization and collective bargaining coverage, uh, even... Uh, as automation and globalization has progressed.
1: Fantastic. If I'm right in thinking, so does Sweden have quite a low level of strikes that have relatively high union role? Yes, so
2: Sweden has quite low strike levels, but I'm not sure what the
1: exact comparison does look like if you sort of picture it against the UK and yeah. not. I'm just thinking with the train strikes next week, it's a mm-hmm. it's a sort of different model of unionization. Rebecca.
4: Yeah, And. Um- Trying to think what I can add. Um, well, I think bargaining power of workers is, is very important, and I do think unions have a role to play in that. Um, uh, I, I think there are there are different ways of strengthening workers' bargaining power. I'm personally very sympathetic to uh, evidence that the decline of unions has contributed in some way to lower bargaining power and some of the trends we've seen in recent years. Um, it's difficult within the current political context to some extent. Some of the you know the fact that that doesn't and come up on my slide is partly to do with just thinking around the current political context of what is very feasible and palatable right now and, and we're much more likely to get action on the kind of employment bill uh, or enforcement route and that in itself is very would be very good so that's partly why it's kind of not there is one of the key things but I also think um, you know unions are one way to increase bargaining power there are other ways too and uh, uh, on one other note it's positive to see quite a lot of innovation and change in terms of the union context in this country and like using different technology and different worker organisations in new ways to try and get workers together and increase the bargaining path. So it does seem to be some positive uh, movement, in, especially among like new innovative groups of workers and stuff like that.
0: Thank you. Anna? Yeah, I mean, I would agree with those points. Um, and I would also point to some new work coming from the Economy 2030 inquiry that is going to be examining um, the role of bargaining and worker power what's been going on in UK labour markets. Um, I mean, I think when we're talking about innovation and technical change, there are, of course, tensions between firms wanting to do things that are good for productivity that, in the short run, might not be good for workers. And those are the types of issues that are worth, you know, grappling with, given the productivity challenge of the UK, which is so bad in terms of levels and in terms of growth. But generally, you know, worker power, workers are, you know, we are workers. People's outcomes are what matter, and having improved outcomes for workers can only be good for the economy in the long run so any issues are kind of more short-term trade-offs and a lot of the time
1: Do do you see any evidence sorry do you see any evidence of like of unionization in some of the sort of newer green job sectors that
0: um it's not something we've examined actually but it might be possible to see you know to look at whether some of the sectors where there are already more green jobs tend to be more unionized. I mean, We know that some of those sectors do tend to be so far the more emissions intense industries, which perhaps are more kind of construction or manufacturing heavy energy sectors. So perhaps these are more organized than some other parts of the economy, thought, particularly transport as well. So yeah, that's an interesting element.
1: Thank you. We'll now turn so to Emma, who's going to read out questions from the online audience. Um, yeah, so
4: there's been a few. This one's from Andrew. How can we anticipate the skills needed in a rapidly transforming economy, for example, Web 3.0, et cetera? Oh, that sounds like a
1: good question. Yes, can you repeat the question?
4: How can we anticipate the skills needed in a rapidly transforming economy? So the example given is Web 3.0, but I'm sure things like AI also apply.
2: Well, I guess one thing we can do is to look at which type of domains do human labor, human workers still hold a comparative advantage as artificial intelligence and other uh, technologies progress. Um, that is basically to ask in which domains do these technologies uh, do poorly. They do poorly when it comes to things like complex social interactions. So we have, we have, you know. The best evidence probably comes from Lovner Prize competitions, which are essentially Turing test competitions, where chatbots tried to convince human judges of them being a person. And, you know, a couple of years ago, some people in the field thought there was a big breakthrough because one chatbot had managed to convince 30% of human judges of it being a person, but it did so by pretending to be a 13-year-old the Russian voice, speaking English as a second language, you know, understanding the English culture, right? And this is basic text communication. So when it comes to social skills, uh, machines are quite far off from human-level capabilities. Another way of looking at this is sort of which are the complementarities between human uh, skills, and uh, those of machines, and still, right, you know, we can write an algorithm that, you know, us very well at like Go or various video games because you can define the objective quite well, which is maximize game score. Uh, what is, do you want to achieve if you ask an algorithm to write a symphony uh, or do something really creative? It's very hard to to define in the first place. So that that would be another domain where uh, and still have the comparative
1: advantage. Thank you. Rebecca, I'm going to add a little extra question for you as well, which is how do you think the UK's skills policy works at the moment with the bottom of
4: the mm. market? Um, lots of room for improvement. I'm not actually a skills policy expert, so I don't have those um, kind of recommendations or comment on the detail. I think the, the main thing, in, and partly this is from my sense of cities days, is the kind of geographical differences between uh, less at the high end, but more at the middle and lower end of the skills and qualifications. And, you know, obviously something in the design of the skill system at the moment is meaning that there are high concentrations of workers with very limited formal qualifications in parts of the UK. um, Probably correlating quite strongly to that map of unemployment up there. So something very important in terms of uh, getting those kinds of uh, more basic qualifications at a higher level for workers, uh, especially in those parts of the country.
1: Great, Thank you.
0: Yeah. Um, so I would think about the skills needs of things like AI and other advanced digital in terms of what skills we need to actually deliver and get the most out of them, which is a slightly different angle. Um, and I think, of course, you know, you need digital and advanced programming skills, but you also need creativity, and it's important <coughs> that that's not kind of squeezed out through education budgets, etc. Creative <laughs> skills to think about what kind of solutions these different technologies can be applied to and how best to design them. Um, and of course, human interactions is important too, as as Carl said. You know, that's something that's much harder to automate away. We are social people. We've seen that through the pandemic, how much people miss being with other people. Um, there's still this intangible importance of that kind of human touch in in many parts of the economy, obviously. Um, and I also think there's there's going to be this real need to understand the the intricacies of AI, not just for those who are kind of programming and creating the new technologies, but also for those who are thinking about how to regulate it, which would be a massive, important area. Um, We can't have information asymmetries, which mean that those who are actually designing the policies and regulations around it don't understand it. So there has to be this kind of broad understanding of some of these quite advanced technologies through the economy. and I think when we think about the UK um, education system, we do really well on HE, but we know that there are cert- higher education, we know there are lots of areas where there are still gaps in the UK and particularly under investment in technical skills at the kind of mid-level. Um, and I would also emphasize, you know, just making sure that we're not letting down those from different <coughs> backgrounds, um, making sure they have access to the right opportunities through the system.
1: Fantastic, we've got time for like super quick question. So, does anyone have a David? If you can keep it, we'll go with David, and then the um, the woman behind him, and we'll super quick questions,
3: please. So, uh, a lot of people seem to agree that the UK has done vastly worse than any other country since about since the late two thousands. W- why do you think that is? Great
1: question. And then we'll take it the woman behind him as well, please.
0: Hi,
4: I had a quick question regarding the regional disparities in the UK and the extent to which place-based policies or a decentralised employment protection or de- uh, yes, de- decentralised employment protection policy can tackle this issue.
1: Great. So, David, first question: Why is the UK done so badly, or has it done so badly? The second one: About of regional disparities. Relatively quick answers, please, Carl. You can take whichever you want to answer
2: Well, those are easy questions uh,
1: <laughs> so I mean on the UK
2: clearly it's been a uh, tough task in part because I think UK heavily, heavily specialized in financial services and after the crash uh, it took a bad a big hit from that uh, it's also did de- 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 industrialized more rapidly and then other uh, countries in Europe. Um, and if you look at you know manufacturing industries, even in the same type of industries like automotive, it's adopting less robots, uh, for example, and less uh, frontier technologies than uh, other uh, similar economies. Why is that? Maybe part of the reason is sort of lagging wages and that it does pay uh, to the same extent in uh, the UK to adopt robots as it does in Germany. Maybe it has something to do with less stable Labor uh, management relations than in other uh, European economies. Uh, to be frank, I'm uh, not completely sure, but I think those are you some know, uh, mechanisms
1: worthwhile well investigating. Good hypothesis, Rebecca.
4: Um, on the first question, probably two things. Firstly, skills, and I do think uh, kind of a lack of being able to solve some of these kind of problems that have been here for a long time in terms of basic qualifications. Um, and low levels of them uh, is an ongoing problem and has really big economic consequences. And secondly, a little bit fluffy, but something around the ability to have kind of long term and uh, big policy action. There have been loads of different reviews, new commissions, I've loads of policy ideas coming through, and yet there seems to be a slight lack of being able to kind of get on and deliver uh, big concrete policy development ideas. So, thank, you. thank you, Anna. Very
0: quickly. Well, I mean, the stagnant kind of living standards and the problems in the labour market are very intrinsically linked to the productivity puzzle in the UK. And it's still called a productivity puzzle because there's an element that can't be explained. Part of that being international, part of it being UK based. too. So while slowdown in certain sectors appear to um, explain more of it, um, overall, we've seen a slowdown across sectors. Our poor level is something that's widespread. And fundamentally, it's it's a lack of investment in the things that we know are important. For productivity that matters, whether it's skills, capital, or R and D, um, and also adoption of technologies and management practices that matter.
1: Fantastic, thank you. So, I mean, one thing we've been really good at today is adopting technology, and it all seems to have worked well. So, we have to say thank you to the LSE events and the LSE um, inequalities team for organising today. The thank you all for coming. Um, the LSE festival continues all. Um, all week so finally thank you very much for our
0: speakers thank you for listening you can subscribe to the lse events podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review visit
3: lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next we hope you join us at another lse event soon